Father, we acknowledge our weakness before you this morning. Our weaknesses as hearers, my weakness in speaking. We pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear and to see what it is you're saying to us. And that we might leave this morning with a great vision of you and your goodness and your glory, that we might love the Lord Jesus more. In his precious name we pray. Amen. One of the truths um, that often surprise people as you, as you chat to them about the Bible it, is the truth that miracles are really uncommon. Often in their mind, the Bible is a, a load of fairy stories, unbelievable ancient writings written for gullible Bronze Age people that don't deserve any of our attention today. But what becomes clear is, is you read through the pages of Scripture more carefully, is that actually miracles are really rare, really unusual. And, and people knew then, as we know today, that cloaks thrown onto the water don't usually separate water. That bears do not usually come and maul 42 youths. That people are not usually taken up into whirlwinds as they die. No, no, miracles are recorded for us for a reason, because they are unusual, because they're noteworthy. They're surprising. That's the point. We're meant to prick up our ears and listen. Miracles are God's highlighter pen. And actually, if you take a step back to try and get the big picture, give or take, there are three key clusters of miracles as you work your way through the Bible. You get them with Moses at the Exodus. Do you remember? He rescues God's people from Egypt. He establishes the covenant. Then here with Elijah and Elisha. They seek to call God's people to return to the covenant, to return to him and covenant faithfulness. And then thirdly, with Jesus in the early church, as the new covenant comes and is inaugurated. But they're not common. They're not normal. And where people struggle to accept them, which which may be us this morning, as a friend puts it, I think really helpfully, it's foundationally because there is a clash of worldviews going on. Do you see, we live in the small corner of the world and the small corner of history where miracles don't happen. We don't believe in them. But, but in the Bible, God's not just a theory or an idea or something to study or something hypothetical. He is real and he really interacts with people. But in the thinking of our small corner of the 21st century, God is not real, and we're just really here by mistake, and if you push people far enough, then we're just accidents. Of course, I can't believe in miracles, they say, because those kind of things don't happen in my world, in the way I see things, that there's a clash of worldviews. But the claim of the Bible is that God's not just there as something that works for some people, Something to make life a bit less scary and a bit more manageable. But no, he's real. We were made to know him and we've walked out on him and we try and stuff our lives full of all kinds of stuff to give us meaning and clarity and purpose and what is this world about. But if I think life is about this and you think life is about that, then who do we know is right? 
We're just in the dark. We're just making it up. And the thing is, the context for this series, for this period of history for God's people, is not far away from that reality. As Andy was teaching the kids, the and us, the, the people have walked out on God again. The king has led them in their walking out on God and they've stuffed their lives full of all kinds of things from other gods. And Elijah the prophet, as he as he speaks for the Lord and as he does miracles, is there to wake them up, to call them back again to the Lord and to covenant faithfulness. Why are you doing this? Why have you forgotten him again? Look Listen, return, stop walking out on the God of life. But, but we've come to the end of this series, at least for now. And the curtain descends for us on Elijah's ministry. And the baton is passed on to Elisha. And it is an unusual chapter. We need to be honest about that. There may have been various legitimate questions bobbing to the surface as Charlie read it for us. We need to be open. Miracles, water and cloaks and bears and whirlwinds and place names and why is Elijah trying to lose Elisha? What is going on? Well, be patient and we will get there. But at the heart of the passage, I want you to see at the start that it is the same God. That's our first point, that the personnel has changed, the personnel changes, but it's the same God at work. Now, if you were here a few weeks ago, this should be no surprise that Elijah hands on to Elisha because we were up Horeb with him. At the end of chapter 19, do you remember, God says to Elijah, anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from abel Mahola to succeed you as prophet. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was playing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him, threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen, ran after Elijah, let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you, and he does. And Elisha has been in tow, Since then, he's been an assistant for Elijah. They know it's coming. They know the handover is going to happen, but there seems to be a a widespread fear. If Elijah's been this key prophet for so long, if he has been in the driving seat, where will this leave the nation now? It's a real question. Right through the chapter, you get these companies of prophets who they come across who are all fearful. What are we going to do? That they're there, do you see, in verse 3? Then in verse 7, there's, sorry, verse 5, another lot appear. Then in verse 7, still another lot look in from the distance. There's, there's a widespread panic amongst the company of prophets as Elijah hands on to Elisha. We don't quite know how they know, but they do. And in the midst of the worry, Surrounding his departure, it seems Elijah, with Elisha in tow, heads off on a random road trip. He's moving from town to town to town. They start off in the north, probably the north, Gilgal, and they come south to Bethel. Then they head east to Jericho. And then from Jericho, further out of the promised land, past the Jordan. Across the Jordan, and out they go. And in each stage, at each town... At each address on the road trip, 
It seems Elijah trying to give Elisha the slip. Have a look, verse 2. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And verse 4, you get the same thing in Jericho. Verse 6, same thing again in Jordan. What's going on? What's he doing? Well, I think the answer finally comes in verses 9 and 10. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me, what can I do for you before I'm taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You've asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. What's happening? Well, as Elisha asks for a double portion of Elijah's spirit, the language of double portion is the language of inheritance. It's a language of firstborn son. And so what he's saying is, I want to succeed you. I want to take on the mantle of your ministry. Give the baton to me and I will run. And Elijah responds and says, you've asked a difficult thing. I think that's not this anointing that is difficult. It is, this is a difficult job. The ministry is difficult. And we've seen that, haven't we? Week by week, as we've journeyed with Elijah, we've seen the reality of the dangers of standing as a lone voice against the king, against the people. The reality of being downcast. It seems such a useless task. The people, the king, everyone ignoring him. Forgetting God again and again and again, turning their backs on the God of life and following Baal. Hearts that are far from him. And as Elisha's ministry unfolds, it is hard. We see him weep. He weeps for his people as they face judgment. So Elijah's seemingly random road trip City to city to city is just giving Elisha an easy get out. It's testing Elisha's commitment. Getting him to count the cost. Are you sure? Are you sure you want to do this? Really? It won't be easy. Do you know what you're letting yourself in for? But Elisha sticks to him like glue. Right until the end. And we see that in verse 11 and 12. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. It's a slightly confusing, unusual couple of verses. There is a lot going on that happens in the blink of an eye. Just four things to note. And I'm aware I've got Old Testament scholars who far far surpass me in this. You can chat to them afterwards. Four things to note. Firstly, verse 11, the chariot of fire and the horses of fire seem to be what, what separates the two men. Secondly, verse 12, Elisha sees him going, which is the key thing, remember, from back in verse 10, which means the inheritance will happen. 
Thirdly, Elijah is taken to be with the Lord in a whirlwind, not in chariots of fire, as some of the children's Bibles might portray. And then fourthly, Elisha shouts out to Elijah, my father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And I have to say, having looked at it this week, lots of people in the commentaries are quite confused as to what's going on. And I think I've changed my mind these last few days. Where have we got to? I'm not sure now, as Elisha looks to Elijah, and he's not saying, I can see chariots and horsemen or angelic armies or something like that. Now, I wouldn't go to the stake over this, but I wonder if he is describing Elijah as he looks at him, as he shouts to him. He says, Father, Father, you're the chariots, you are the horsemen of Israel. So their language of description of Elijah. Now, why might I say that's the case? Because if you fast forward to Elisha's deathbed, 2 Kings 13 and verse 14, as Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him, he says, my father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. So it could be a picture, it could be a euphemism for for them dying and going to be with the Lord. But it could be a title. Why might Elijah and Elisha get called that? Because in spiritual terms, they are God's army. They are the protectors of God's people. They call the people away from idolatry. They call them back to blessing. Elijah and Elisha are the horsemen of Israel. And suddenly in those terms, you see why Elijah was urging Elisha to count the costs. You see something of the weight of responsibility, the difficulty of this task. It's as if they're God's army, bringing his words to a wayward people. But the Lord does not leave them by themselves to do it. Elisha has been equipped by the Lord. So you see, he picks up Elijah's cloak heads back to the Jordan, and just like Elijah, end of verse 14, he divides the water in two. Which answers the question, where now is God? Well, verse 15, the company of the prophets from Jericho who were watching said, the spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha, and they went to meet him and bowed the ground before him. Where is God? He is here. He is working through Elisha. He has the double portion that he needs to do the tasks that he's been called to. He shows us that through the same miracle, exactly the same miracle, deliberately. And then it's clear that Elisha begins to retrace Elijah's steps, and the chapter will end up at Mount Carmel. As Elisha heads to the key place in Elijah's ministry, where Elijah left off. So different individuals, different personalities, but the same God throughout. The same God at work. And I take it that in a very real and tangible way is a great message for us as a church family at this time of year. Now, Elijah and Elisha were unique. They were key foundational characters in the Bible. But at the same time, the story of their lives was not about them, but about him. Just as the story of our lives are not about us, but about him. 
And so why is it great for us as a church family to remember these truths at this time of year? Because it's easy to despair in a season of departures. And I look around the room and there are people, I think for even today is your last Sunday with us. But it's part of our calling as a church to build people and to send people for the glory of God and for his kingdom. It's part of the nature of Oxford. People are here for a year or three years or a few more, very often, and we love them and we pour ourselves into them and we send them and we miss them and they leave holes everywhere. And you know the pain of that and I know the pain of that. But we can trust God. Because it is his mission. He will provide. He will send the right people with the right gifts to do his work. Just as he sent an Elisha when Elijah moved on. So you can prayerfully trust with me that he will send the right people to continue his ministry. Because it's, it's not about us. It's about him. So first point, we see it is the same God. Secondly, it's the same message. Because you see, conceivably, Elisha may end up being a different kind of prophet. We've seen that the Lord has equipped him. But there may be a different emphasis, a, a different focus for his message. And at this key stage in succession, the question now is, well, what kind of prophet will he be? What's Elisha going to do? And the answer, he's going to be the same as Elijah, he is continuing the work. Prophets in the Bible are not so much predicting what's going to happen, but calling God's people back to him, to his covenant. And so what you get in 19 to 25 is essentially Elisha's ministry in microcosm. It's the abstract before the main article. It's the glimpse and the taster of what's to come up. In, in Bethel, we see it's going to be a place of blessing. Elisha will be a prophet of blessing for the faithful. And in Jericho, it's a place of curse. Elisha will be a prophet who judges the unfaithful. Let me read those verses again to us. Verse 19, the people of the city, that's Bethel, said to Elisha, Look, our Lord, this town is well situated, but as you can see, the water is bad and the land is unproductive. Bring me a new bowl, he said, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the spring and threw the salt into it, saying, This is what the Lord says, I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the water has remained pure to this day, according to the word Elisha has spoken. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel as he was walking along the road. Some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, Baldy, they said. Get out of here, Baldy. He turned round, looked at them, called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. The two bears came out of the wood and mauled 42 of the boys. And they went on to Mount Carmel and from there returned to Samaria. Story in Bethel, it starts with respect, they call him Lord. But then they talk of bad water in the city, and we don't know why. Actually, verse 19, the land is unproductive, is, is actually a gr- graphic, vivid, horrible phrase, painful. The, the land suffers from miscarriages, it says. And some commentators even say that's not a figurative thing, that's a literal thing, perhaps. Maybe 
The water supply was actually contaminated, which meant that livestock and people were prone to miscarriages. It's a place of death. We don't know for sure, but we do know the Lord heals it. Verse 21, the salt is the visible action accompanying the Lord's word. It's clear he speaks. It's his word that is powerful. It's the God who deals with the curse of death. It's the God who brings living water. This is the God of life. But then Jericho is less pleasant. And we're thinking, is Elisha just a bit of a grump? Did he get out of bed the wrong side that morning? Why do these these 42 youths get it so bad? A couple of things. As they, they mock him and shout at him, get out of here, Baldy, get out of here, Baldy. And I'm careful where I look. As insults, it's not the most imaginative, is it? But, but it may be that Elisha is simply follically challenged. It may be that he has shaved his head as a sign of being a prophet. But the point is, it's not just them being rude teenagers. It's a picture of how they treat God's prophet, and so how they treat God's words, and so how they treat God. That's what's going on. And so Elisha speaks another word in the name of the Lord. Instead of a word of healing, it's a word of cursing. And two bears appear. In fact, you can track it back to Leviticus. Interestingly, if you go back to Leviticus 26, as part of the covenant curse, God says, if you are unfaithful, I will send wild animals against you and they will rob you of your children, destroy your cattle, and it goes on there. And if that's in mind, it's interesting because in Bethel you get the switch from being barren to being fruitful. And in Jericho it's the reverse. It's from being fruitful to being barren with children robbed, youth removed. It's a reversal. And so at the start of Elisha's ministry, again, we know it's about the covenant. It's covenant blessings and covenant cursings. It's contrasting reactions to how people relate to God's prophet to his message, to his God. Elisha will continue the ministry of Elijah in calling people back to the Lord. And then it's the so what. What does this passage mean? The danger is we can miss the wood for the trees. And in the vast majority of the commentaries, or the few commentaries there are on this passage, the most of the stuff is about leadership succession. And don't get me wrong, I think there is something in that. Of course, Elijah and Elisha were unique. It's a unique point. But there's stuff that we can learn and it's helpful. But from our stance, the thing that I want us to latch onto at the end of the series is what this passage says to us of Christ. What does it say to us of Jesus? This is a book about him. What does it tell us of him? Well, as you read through the Bible, very deliberately you see different patterns, different motifs, different melodies that repeat and appear and reappear, and and we're meant to join them up. So from this point of Elijah and Elisha in the middle, the first thing we can do is go backwards and look back. 
And as we've journeyed with Elijah these past few weeks, we have noted that he sounds like Moses. He, he does Moses-type stuff. Do you remember, he spent time on Mount Horeb. He, he saw something, he heard something of the Lord's glory and his goodness. And all along he's been speaking of the covenant. Return to the covenant, return to God. He's, he's even interceded for his sinful people. And then Elijah's life ends just a little east of the Jordan, across from Jericho, outside the land, which is exactly where Moses died. And his death, like Moses, is shrouded in mystery because there is no body. No one knows where he's buried, at least. But then after Elijah comes Elisha, who was his assistant and who took over from him, which parallels Moses to Joshua, who takes over from him, continues the ministry, leads the people. And there are even parallels in the names. Joshua means the Lord saves. Elisha means God saves. At the start of Joshua's ministry, God demonstrates that he is with him by a particular miracle. Let me read it to you, Joshua 3 and verse 15. Now the Jordan is in flood or during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. You see, Joshua divided the Jordan so the people could cross and now God demonstrates he's with Elisha by dividing the Jordan, doing the same thing. And so from Elijah and Elisha in the middle, you can look backwards and see Moses to Joshua. But you can do more than that. You can look ahead as well. Because you see, God promised that one day, one beautiful day, there would be a time when his final saviour would come to lead the people. He would make a new covenant with his people. And it was said that before he came, Elijah would return. He would come to get them ready. He would come to call them to repentance. He would come to usher it in. And so as the gospel accounts start, we have John the Baptist. He's an Elijah-type figure. He wears Elijah-type clothes. He speaks Elijah-type words, saying, return to the Lord. Come back. Come back. Jesus says explicitly of John that he fulfills that promise. And John the Baptist was followed too, but this time not by his assistant, but by one who would surpass him. He was getting people ready for the Lord. He was getting people ready for Jesus. Again, there's a similarity in names. Jesus, like Joshua, means the Lord saves. The transfer from Elijah to Elisha takes place at the Jordan River and God anoints Elisha there. And Jesus takes over from John the Baptist at the Jordan River. And God anoints him as the Spirit descends. There's a similarity too in terms of actions, in terms of ministry type. Do you remember John the Baptist sends messengers to Jesus just to say, are you really the promised Messiah? 
And Jesus responds with evidence of Elisha-type miracles. There's dead being raised, lepers being cured, life being given. And there's even a bizarre reference at the end of Elisha's ministry, end of his life, when a corpse is thrown into Elisha's grave. And it comes back to life. 2 Kings 13, once while some Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a band of raiders, so they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb. When the body touched Elisha's bones, the man came to life and stood up on his feet. And we think, a man's tomb being able to bring people back to life? Well, where else do we get that kind of thing happening? Well, supremely, the empty tomb on the Sunday morning. Because he is risen. Because his empty tomb brings life. Life eternal. And so you see, it's right that we finish this series on Jesus because he is one like Elisha who will go on and bring life. But you see, just as there were differing responses to Elijah and Elisha, the question for us is, how do we respond to Jesus? Hebrews 1 and verse 1, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, and many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. So how do we respond to Jesus, his full and final word? The saviour whom all of history has been waiting for. We've seen in the passage that rejection of God, his word, himself, will lead to judgment. But we've seen in the passage too that a humble trust of him And his word will lead to blessing. He will give us a word of life. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that you have fully and finally spoken in him. Thank you for the prophets who spoke of you and who pointed to him. But thank you that he is your final word. And we pray that we might respond to him in faith. We thank you that he is the one who who speaks life. Guard our hearts and minds, please. Might we love him more and more each day. Might we see how incredible he is. Might we know his love for us. Might we humbly trust him and receive him. In his precious name we pray. Amen.